Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. People in general seem to have an aversion to the use of the word evil these days. But not me. No, no, I say, call it as you see it. I say, put all your cards on the table. I say trying is the first step to failing. I mean, that, that last one doesn't have anything to do with this, but I do say it, although Homer Simpson said it first, admittedly. I don't get the tendency to shy away from calling something evil. There's a lot of darkness in this world. We all know it. Most of us probably feel like we're treading water trying to stay above it. But the first step to dealing with the problem is to call it out for what it is. On today's episode, we're going to talk directly to Jesus, then we'll shoot up, and finally we'll try to at least hold our ground on the side of the slippery slope. So prepare to be completely offended, roll up your sleeve, and get ready to blow a safety valve, because here we go. So you know how much fun it is to blaspheme God, right? Sure you do. I'm sure that God has a great sense of humor and just loves it when one of his image bearers mocks the Holy Spirit or dresses up as Jesus and uses foul language or sexual innuendo. Yeah, God's probably on his throne with tears streaming down his face from laughing so hard. (laughs) Uh, either that or, you know, humans should be pretty happy that God doesn't just squash us all like bugs or hurl down lightning bolts or open the ground to swallow us up pretty much um, all of the time. So I debated if I wanted to cover this one or not. But as I got looking into this and after I got my jaw to cooperate in, you know, closing back up again, I, I got thinking and, you know, this, this literally applies to all of us. Found on notthebee.com, headline, A company is selling a Christian Ouija board to talk directly to Jesus. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a true headline, and it's a true game, whatever a Ouija board is. You can follow the link to the article to see a picture of this thing. That'll be the only link I have for this segment. You can do more searching on your own, but uh, but just just don't. Just don't do that. To briefly explain, the game consists of a Ouija-type setup. The background of the board is clouds and sky. There's an angel on each side with their little trumpet. There's an infinity symbol, you know, like a figure eight laying on its side. That's in the middle of the board with the letters of the alphabet making up the symbol, as well as letters inside uh, each of the little holes in the symbol. And then it has A and Z outside the symbol at the center of that infinity sign. It doesn't matter. At the top is the name of the game. Under that is a yes and a no. And at the bottom is a banner that says goodbye, Jesus. That's how you're supposed to leave the game is to say goodbye, Jesus. There's a fancy type of golden cross with a hole in the middle. That's the little Ouija board mover thing, whatever it's called. I don't really care. The lid of the box has artwork depicting God sitting at the game board holding the cross. On the box, it states, quote, communicate directly with Jesus Christ. Yeah, this isn't going anywhere good, right? Now, Not The Bee is a somewhat snarky site, and before I read their brief article, rather instead opting for just the headline, as most of us do with most articles, I went and did some research on my own. And then coming back to the article, I had found what they had found and had drawn basically the same conclusions. But as they are more of a short-form kind of news site, and I'm more of a long-form or a long-winded form, I wanted to delve a little deeper. So this game, if you want to call it that, is made by a company calling themselves Holy Spirit Games. This is the only product they sell, which sadly enough, you can buy on Amazon. Let's be realistic here. Amazon is not a Christian company. We can't expect them to uphold Christian values. And no, I'm not going to boycott Amazon over this. If I boycotted every store or company that did things that go against my faith and beliefs, I'd die from starvation naked in the woods somewhere. And let me tell you, neither Smokey the Bear, a park ranger, Yogi, Bigfoot, a random camper, a Boy Scout troop, nor Boo Boo want to come across that. So for the safety of society, I don't boycott stores in general, with some exceptions. 
The fact that most companies are not Christian-based is why it's such big news when a company at least tries to uphold Christian or even Christian-ish values. You know, for instance, Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A, or Patriot Mobile. The reason Christians are enamored by these type of companies is because other companies, they just aren't. They, they just don't do this. They don't care. Anyway, digression. So this seems to be part gag gift, part atheistic mocking of, you know, a magical sky god that their positive doesn't exist and that you're a fool for believing in. Now I'll let you draw your own dividing line between those choices. So they have a website, I mean, if you want to call it that, with a promotional video. We'll hit that in a moment. And a description. Let me read you the description. Quote, Holy Spirit Games presents the Holy Spirit Board, a new way to pray. With other spirit boards, you have to worry about ghosts and demons haunting you and your family. But with the Holy Spirit Board, you only have a direct line to Jesus Christ himself. It's all the fun of speaking to the dead with none of the risk. Simply place your hands on the magic cross and let JC guide your hands to answer all of your prayers. Let's face it, we all pray to Jesus, but sometimes the message he sends us isn't so clear. Now you have a foolproof way of understanding the Lord's will right in the palm of your hand. Try it today. And remember, anyone who says the Holy Spirit board doesn't work is both a liar and a sinner in the eyes of our Lord. Amen. Oh, so at this point in my search, I was torn. Was this a gag gift that mocks God or was this a legitimate thing that a very misguided yet entrepreneurial individual has created? I was leaning toward gag. Then I watched the promo video or whatever you want to call it. And eh, it's a gag mocking a God that they don't believe and or care exists. I mean, you can buy the thing. It's a real product, but it's it's there to mock the Trinity and mock Christians and if they can make a little folding money while they're at it, hey, even better. The promotional video has what sounds to be an effeminate man dressed as the classic Americanized Jesus. He starts by making sure that we know that using a Ouija board is dangerous and, of course, has to throw in some foul language to emphasize his point. He then smashes the Ouija board with a bat and breaks it. He uses a golf club driver on various parts of Ouija boards. And then he says that this new board is the only way to contact him directly. Then some sexual innuendo. And then a close-up of two hands holding the cross thing on the board. They ask the question if this is a real thing. And then a third hand reaches in and pulls the cross over to the yes on the board. Of course, that third hand was the very hand of Jesus, actor guy. And it closes with him pouring himself a glass of wine from a bottle of water. Very clever. Now, they have two testimonial reviews. One is interesting, in my opinion. Seeing as there isn't any foul language or innuendo, I'll play it for you as I find it, like I said, interesting. Do you want to know the number one way to convert your atheist friends to Christianity? In just 30 seconds, I can show you how. See, atheists only believe in facts and things they can see with their own eyes. When it comes down to something like prayer, their hearts just aren't open to receiving the truth. But now, thanks to the science of the Holy Spirit Board, they have a factual way of receiving answers to their prayers in plain English. The way our Father intended. So buy your Holy Spirit board today and change their lives forever. Have a little faith. You won't regret it. Not sure about you, but I found that uh, more true than they probably intended it to be. Now on Amazon, they have six reviews, only 2.3 out of five stars. That's not so good. This is made up of one five-star review, one four-star and four one-star ratings. The five star is a joke, saying that he used to use a Ouija board, but his house got infested with demons, so he switched to this, and now Jesus can tell him his fortune every day. The four star seems legit about the quality of the board, I guess, but then says the messages from Jesus are odd, that he's saying his name is Asmodeus, which I had to look up, and apparently that's a prince of demons or something, I don't know. The one-star reviews, those are real reviews. I don't believe they actually bought the product. They just kind of offered their opinions on the product. One calls it out as evil, being nothing but a Ouija board. One said that this is a deception from the pits of hell. Another says this is more evil than a Ouija board. Then warns, quote, play with the Lord and see what happens. 
And the last one said that if this is supposed to be a gag gift, it should be clearly advertised as such. Then says, quote, believe it or not, there are people without the discernment who will think that this is for real. And you know, that last reviewer and the fake testimonial video, they're, they're right, actually. Now look, you're going to get some people that will buy this board and truly believe it will help them talk to Jesus. There are a number of reasons why, but out of the size population we're dealing with, there's always a percentage that are always whatever, right? Personally, I wouldn't be sad if this product disappeared forever. I think it's evil from the standpoint of being blasphemous, just very blasphemous. But this type of product doesn't bother me too much that it exists because it's very clear what this is and who they are. It's not making any mistakes about this. We all know what this is. That said, I also think this is dangerous because we know that no member of the Trinity is going to communicate through a board, but this is literally no different than a Ouija board. And although for most, a Ouija board is just a stupid game, there is a possibility it opens the door to demonic activity. A number of years ago, I did a series of Sunday school lessons warning kids to stay away from these various dark, evil things in our our world today. The zombie thing was getting into full swing, the Slender Man craze was at its peak, and the movie Ouija was just coming out, so I discussed Ouija boards. One older woman at the church told a story from when she had just graduated high school and started lab tech school. She said that she was in a dorm, there were maybe 10 to 12 girls, one of which had a Ouija board. It was suggested they play with the board, and this woman, having no idea what it actually was, thought, okay, whatever. She said that they would ask questions, but it never answered their questions. It just kept giving the same date over and over, December 15th. So finally, one of the girls asked the board, what about December 15th? It then spelled out, they will die. Well, this freaked them out, but they tried asking other questions anyway, and it just kept giving them the same date and the same message over and over. So I put it away. They get to December 15th, and they're all kind of on edge, wondering what was going to happen. Well, this happened in 1967. That's the night that the Silver Bridge built in 1928 spanning the Ohio River at Point Pleasant, West Virginia, collapsed during rush hour traffic, killing 46 people. After that, they threw the game in the trash, and she said that, uh, at least speaking for herself, uh, she never messed with anything like that again. Now, this thing is nearly always just a stupid game, but it can be very real. I don't think that demons know the future, but I absolutely believe they have at least some physical powers on this planet. But to say how demons knew this exact date, I don't I don't know. But like I said, I believe her, and we see what happened. Now, let me be clear. Them playing with this didn't cause the bridge to collapse. The terrifying part of this is that they made contact with something. I believe this possibility could happen even with this gag product. But again... This is an obvious thing, right? This this game is a gag. It's an obviously, it's a Ouija board. For nearly everyone, Christian or not, they know that this is just supposed to be a stupid thing. What scares me more than this even are churches claiming to be Christian that are doing this exact same thing just without a board. There's a religious movement out there called the New Apostolic Reformation, the NAR. They're loosely associated with the Assembly of God, sort of, and they're mostly of the charismatic variety. Probably one of the most well-known churches is from Redding, California, Bethel Church. Think Bethel music or Jesus culture music. They're both coming out of this church. Well, the NAR is very focused on hearing extra-biblical information from God. They're also of the mindset that the Holy Spirit is kind of like a genie. In fact, the daughter of Bill Johnson, the pastor of Bethel, her name is Jen Johnson, she said in the past that she envisions the Holy Spirit like the genie from Aladdin and that he's blue. They, and many, many churches in this country, and spreading throughout the world quickly, claim that God is talking to them on a regular basis, that God wants you to be healthy and prosperous and rich. Many of these so-called pastors start their TED Talks that they're passing off as sermons with something like, God told me, and some of the bigger liars will say that they have seen or are seeing Jesus right at that very moment. Some will claim they've taken trips to heaven where they had something revealed to them. Some can tell you what they saw. Some can't. Now, some of the crazier crazies are easy to spot. Churches like Bethel are not as easy to see the deception. In fact, we roll our eyes at the idea of a Christian Ouija board, but what about Christian tarot cards? 
Yeah, look up Destiny cards. These are apparently developed by an Australian group called Christ Alignment. They are associated with Bethel through one of the Bethel staff members, although Bethel claims they don't subscribe to practices like these Destiny cards. At the same time, they say that Christians can't be narrow-minded by, quote, opposing creative means of evangelism. And that's what these cards are supposed to do. They're supposed to use these on the street with unbelievers to give them a Christian spiritual reading, I guess, of some sort. So is something like this okay? The answer is no. No, it's not, just in case you were wondering. But what about the general evangelical Christianity? How many times have we, or someone we know, said something like, I feel like God is telling me, fill in the blank, what about a pastor that gets up on a Sunday morning and says, I was planning on preaching X, but I feel the Spirit wants me to speak on Y today. Is is any of this okay? Well, it's sort of. I mean, it could be. The, the real answer is it depends on what the person is actually claiming. The reality is we can get impressions. We can feel things. We can even hear things in our minds. But we could never say with 100% confidence that this is God speaking to us. The best we could ever do is to hear or feel something, follow that feeling, and if it turns out good, we could say that God blessed us in that. But remember, not everything God has for us is what we would consider good. We're all subject to tests and trials. We're all subject to the world hating us. We're told this in the Bible. But we're in a point of our history that we have books like Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. This is a book of things that God apparently told her, so she claims. And why? Well, because as she said, the Bible wasn't giving her a whole lot anymore. She was just wanting something more. Well, I'm glad God decided to tell her enough of these things so that she could write a book and make a big name for herself. What about the popes? They're the vicars of Christ, right? The mouthpieces. Their words are literally the words of Christ. Why do popes through history contradict each other? Christ seems to be very confused. We're told by a variety of modern-day, quote, pastors and, quote, prophets that prophecies don't have to be accurate all the time. Bob Jones said, quote, we can expect prophetic accuracy of up to about 65%. Well, judging from, uh, from who's stumbling around the White House, that 65% prophecy was way off here just recently. Nearly everyone that claims to be a modern-day prophet said that Trump would win, and then that he did win, but he wouldn't assume the White House until, and then you can fill in the blank on the date, and then they made adjustments as they went. Now, there were a few that came back and apologized. None actually repented for their false prophecy, and none repented for being a false prophet. The Bible tells us that if a prophet isn't accurate 100% of the time, they're a false prophet, putting words in God's mouth that he never said, and they need to be killed. Not sure where Bob Jones and others grab their theory that a prophet today is held at a less standard. Along the same lines, if any of us are getting revelations from God, why are we not opening the canon of Scripture and tacking it on at the end? And if you say, no, I mean, that, that would be silly. Why? Is God speaking today less authoritative than God speaking back then? Has he lost some of his clout over the years? Is he more unsure of himself these days? Are his powers weakening where he just can't bridge the gap and get a clear message to humans? Is there too much space junk or maybe all the satellites are screwing up the signal? Or is it because nobody would feel comfortable putting something new at the end of the Bible? That should make us feel, you know, just a little squidgy. And since not one prophet, not any of us, have ever suggested doing this, it apparently does feel a little lightning strike-ish. Well, why is claiming that we've been given a fresh message and new revelation, why is that okay then? I can't remember who said it, but basically they said, if our revelation says something different than what's found in the Bible, it's not from God. If it says the same as what's in the Bible, it's not necessary. Our revelations are not needed. We have all of God's word we need. It's found in the Bible. God told me to date this person. God told me to write a book. God told me to deliver this sermon. How is that any different than Jesus told me through his Holy Spirit board? We have no need to casually put God's name on our words. And in fact, this is quite literally breaking commandment number three, to attribute God's name to something he didn't say 
And unless we read it out of the Bible, we can't positively say that God said it. Well, that is taking his name in vain. It's a casual, flippant misuse of God's name. As I said, we have no need to do this. The scripture, in fact, is, quote, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. At least this is what the Apostle Paul told Timothy. Seems authoritative a little bit, right? Even more, the scriptures aren't evergreen. They don't need updating. They don't need added context. They don't need refreshing to fit the times. Quote, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. That's what the apostle Peter told us. We're told by Agur, the son of Jekka, you know, Agur, the son of Jekka, in Psalm 30 that, quote, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And that doesn't just apply to Agur, you know, the son of Jekka. It applies to us today. As Gustavo, the author of Hebrews, because <clears throat> we, we don't know the author of Hebrews, so, so as Gustavo says, quote, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, at the time Hebrews was written, which, using the context clues in the book, has been thought to be around 65 AD, Jesus, the Son, had lived, died, was raised to life, and had ascended back up into heaven. So if long ago God spoke to the Jews and us through the prophets, that would be the Old Covenant, or as we know it today, the Old Testament. And if today, in the last days, which we are currently in and have been in ever since the ascension of Jesus back to heaven, if today God has spoken to us by his Son, past tense, spoken, by his son Jesus, who is not physically on the earth teaching anymore, how could God speak to us in the last days by his son? Through the Bible, right? Notice the office of prophet, at least in this passage, is uh, poof, gone. So all of these so-called modern-day prophets that only need to get some future-casting prophecies, right? Because they said so. And for so many of us, and I'll admit, Prior to my biblical understanding being corrected, I'm guilty of this too, for so many of us that state that God told us something, and this blasphemous Holy Spirit board, what's really the difference among these? We're all placing words in God's mouth, attributing our words to his name, and that we are absolutely not supposed to do. It's so easy to allow the world to creep into our lives and creep into our faith. Maybe not a Holy Spirit board. But sure, destiny cards, or men claiming their words are prophecies given to them by God. Maybe not obvious man-made prophecies, but sure, I think God is telling me to... something. It's also very easy to point out the anti-God, biblically hostile attitudes and actions all across this world. They're, they're just everywhere, and they're blatant. They're offensive and infuriating. This Holy Spirit board should make every Christian angry. And we have every right to be angry. I mean, these little clowns are mocking God. But shouldn't we be as angry, if not more so, at these people that claim Christianity, but also claim that God is telling them things? But in some cases, we give them a pass. In other cases, we kind of ignore them as kooks. In other cases, we kind of follow along with some of them. But they're doing the same thing, just not using some sort of board, at least that we know of. And coming back to us individually, shouldn't we be very focused, very aware of what we do, what we think and what we say, as well as what we read and watch to make sure that we are first not supporting this kind of thing and second, not letting even a little of this blasphemous worldview into our lives. It's easy to look outside to look at others. It's hard to look at ourselves. But sanctification is an individual process. We must be aware of what's going on around us and be ready to take action or take a stand when needed. But even more, we must be aware and personally active always to make sure that we're not letting the ways of the world compromise our beliefs. So despite the potential rumors that are probably floating around, I am not a doctor. I am a scientist, but not a doctor scientist or a scientist doctor. And I'm not even a master of the sciences, I'm simply a bachelor of the sciences. But I am a self-described, as nobody else has described me as such, logician. Not a magician, a logician. 
In other words, I read and see things and says to myself, I says, that don't make no sense. The gift of logic can be used in just about any scenario for just about any topic. It helps to troubleshoot problems, fix broken things, predict what someone is going to say or do, decipher what in the world my child is trying to tell me, reverse engineer things, redesign things, and as in the case of our segment today, sniff out some massive piles of, uh, you've got to be kidding me. Found on CNN.com in their... In their health section, headline, by the next RSV season, the U.S. may have its first vaccine. <sighs> now, in the past, I would have said, oh, that sounds great. That's, that's wonderful. But today, well, today is a completely different day, isn't it? Today is a day where the trust for these big pharma companies is, uh, well, it's completely out the window, where it's become clear that we will now do and accept anything we're told as long as someone promises to make the pain stop. <sighs> Today is a day where fear grips the entire nation. In fact, most of the globe. The two sides of the brain are essentially logic and emotion. Most people have a mix of both. Women typically a little bit farther on the emotional side, men on the logical side. Although, <laughs> wow, am I not as sold on that as I used to be. Generally, if we're acting in fear, our decision-making turns into fight or flight rather than contemplation and rational decision-making based on close analysis of the situation. In most cases, we have time to analyze situations and make a decision. But the latest trend seems to be to keep everyone in a heightened state of panic in order to keep that fight-or-flight instinct raw and twitchy. This is what literally led to lockdowns, which do nothing but delay the inevitable, and distancing, which literally does nothing, masking, which does as much, if not more nothing, than distancing, and ultimately the vaccine. The vax that those of us that refuse to go along with the lemmings are now being told we should just let bygones be bygones. All that bullying, shaming, wishing death upon, spitting on, canceling, firing, and everything else. Let's just call a mulligan, a little amnesty. Well, I for one, I can forgive, although to be honest, I know it's the right thing to do, but it's going to take some time. But what I won't ever, ever do is forget. And I'm a strong advocate for justice, not vigilante justice. No, no, no. Through the right legal channels. But Justice, not amnesty, must be done. Look, we still hunt down any existing 90-year-old Nazi and prosecute them fully. I maintain that what was done during this COVID pandemic was in a different way, as bad as, if not worse, than the Holocaust. Now, feel free to disagree with me, but when the Holocaust ended, there was a defined criminal, there was a defined crime, there was a clear direction for justice and for the victims, the victimization ended, the trauma remained for those directly affected, but the crime itself stopped. In the case of COVID, the damage it's done to children and the ongoing and potentially generational damage being done by the constant chemical injections, I say potentially, we don't know, but the picture is bleak and it's becoming more and more clearly bleak daily. Anyway, this rant is not the point of this review. Although it kind of is, isn't it? Because now, now we're being told that we're going to have cures for just about everything because of the salvation offered to us by mRNA vaccines that aren't vaccines by any stretch of the imagination. Now, this is despite the current mRNA vaccine for, uh, you know what, being the most dangerous, deadly vaccine ever developed with immediate and long-lasting damage and threat of death and harm. But don't worry, they're working on an mRNA vaccine that will help repair heart tissue as well. Oh yeah, those stories started coming out in the uh, middle of the, of the year, 2022. That's nice, one vaccine to not stop you from getting sick or transmitting a certain virus, but it'll damage your heart and another injection that will uh, apparently heal your heart. Uh, oh man, I guess what is the side effect of this one, it'll make your head fall off or something? I mean, can we just stop with this insanity, please? And the answer is no. No, we can't. Full steam ahead with, uh, with the insanity. So by next year, we may have a new RSV vaccine. <laughs> oh, goody. I hope it's more dangerous and deadly than RSV itself. 
Oh, that's a joke. Of course it will be. So RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, is a very common contagious virus that infects the respiratory tract. This little fellow causes bronchiolitis in infants, the common cold for adults, and pneumonia typically in the elderly and the immunocompromised. As of now, there are no vaccines for this, just as there isn't a common cold vaccine, a pneumonia vaccine, or a bronchitis vaccine. See, a vaccine for something like this, similar to flu, similar to COVID, is essentially impossible to lock down. This is because these generally attack the upper respiratory tract, although the worst of the COVID virus attack deeper in the lungs. The upper tract, although inside your body, from an immune system and immunization viewpoint, is more akin to an external organ, like trying to kill a virus on the skin. Because of the way the upper respiratory tract and the immune system work, an infection there does not get the same kind of immune response from our system. A vaccine that doesn't target the virus correctly could actually make things worse rather than better. This is from an article on ABC in April 2020, quoting a few experts on why COVID vaccine will likely not be available anytime soon. And then eight months later, faster than any vaccine in history, by more than twice, because many of the tests were skipped or combined or barely tested, ah, we had the COVID vaccine. Now, an RSV vaccine has been in the works for about 50 years now. According to an article from 2016, there was a trial run on a potential RSV vaccine done back in the 60s. This was a trial done on babies and proved to make the infections uh, more serious, resulting in the death of two of the infants. As I've been saying since December 2020, what parent in their right mind would pump an unproven, barely trialed, newly developed chemical into their child with no idea what it might do, short or long term? Well, turns out a lot of parents who I would have thought to be logical, smart, reasonable people would absolutely do this. Part of the reason that, although forgiveness can come, oh, I believe justice must be done. Back in September of 2016, Novavax... Now remember, these are the guys that those of us so-called anti-vaxxers hoped would come out with a traditional style vaccine for COVID. And although they aren't the same as the others, without digging into it, I've heard nothing positive about this one either. Well, Novavax was deep into a trial for an RSV vaccine. At a very late stage of the trial, the vaccine failed. It proved no protection whatsoever. You can look at their stock ticker. They ended September 6th of 2016 at $155.80 per share and closed out September 12th, 2016 at $25.80 a share. This translated to a loss of $1.5 billion basically overnight. Now, today they're trading at $19.43 a share. Regarding the COVID vax, Novavax announced in January 2021 that their vaccine was more than 89% effective. Their stock price as of February 1st, 2021 was sitting at $290.18 per share. Like I said, it's now down below $20 per share. So back to our article. Now that we have this mRNA magic bullet, we can just get everything. RSV, COVID, cancer, heart damage, hangnails, athlete's foot, water on the knee, writer's cramp, butterflies in the stomach, Charlie horse, and all of the other ailments on the Operation Game Board. So after having a few seasons of just apparently no flu, no pneumonia, no RSV, bronchitis, or anything other than COVID, because either COVID just blocked everything else like magic, or our medical professionals were for various reasons, none of them good, simply coding everything as COVID. Don't make me play the commercial again. Well, apparently RSV and flu are now suddenly back, and this time, uh, they're pissed. Yeah, they're back with a vengeance now, out to just kill everything. And that's what they do. Remember, I need you to panic, please. You get RSV, you die. But there's hope, possibly. As the article says, quote, it's shaping up to be a severe season for RSV infections, one of the worst some doctors say they can remember. But even as babies struggling to breathe fill hospital beds across the United States, there may be a light ahead. 
After decades of disappointment, four new RSV vaccines may be nearing review by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and more than a dozen others are in testing. Now, notice the language. I I tried to emphasize it for you. Some doctors say, not some remember, some doctors just say. And, And can you picture the beds loaded down with these poor babies struggling, just begging you to inject them with anything? Well, as luck would have it, apparently there is an injection that can be given to a child straight out of the womb, an antibody shot that's up to 75 whole percent effective at stopping RSV infections that require medical attention for up to six months. Can we get any more qualifiers on this? So we want to inject our newborns with a chemical that sort of does something, maybe. Yeah, it's a hard pass for me, thanks. So they give some numbers, but... Wow, are they shifty with their numbers. They're very carefully using these numbers. They, they want to be very careful how they present their case. Remember, we need you to be in a constant state of fear. Lessen the chance that you'll put a lot of thought into this. They tell us that RSV causes about 33 million infections in children under the age of five in the world. Okay. Well, if there are like 50 million children this age group in the world, this is a problem. But as of 2021, there are about 670 million children under five in the world. So 33 million, and although I'm sorry for them that they're infected, that's about 5% of the kids. 5%. Now, they don't tell us that because 5% is a lot less scary than 33 million. Now, 3.6 million are hospitalized every year. So 0.5% approximately. And so in a given year, if you have a child under five years old, he has a 95% chance of not getting RSV and a 99.5% chance of not needing hospitalization due to RSV. Notice we haven't mentioned deaths yet, but that's next. Nearly a quarter of a million young children die each year from complications of their infections. Okay, hold up there just a second. We just changed the denominator here. Did you notice that? First of all, if this was a quarter million, or as we'd call it, 250,000 of those under five that died, that would be about 0.04% or a 99.96% chance your child under five will survive yet another RSV season. But that's not what they said. The article changed it from under five to young children. Well, what ages does that include? Because if it was under five, the author would have just said that, right? So it's not just under five. Let's say young children are those under 14, which seems to be another demographic chunk in the accepted world of data. Well, that would be 250,000 out of 1.95 billion children around the world, approximately. Now we're talking about a 0.013% of the population or a 99.987% or round that off to a 99.99% chance your young child will survive up to the age of 14 through an RSV season. And recall, these are deaths from complications of the infections. What does that mean exactly? Well, we're not told what that means. So let's just say that your young child has a 99.96 to a 99.99% chance of surviving in RSV season. Is that worth getting various injections shoved into them? Uh, Well, for some people, absolutely it is. For Charlotte Brown, a pediatrician, she jumped at the chance to get her 10-month-old injected with a trial vaccine as soon as they let her enroll. Why? Well, in her words, quote, I took care of a baby who was only a few months older than him, and he had nine days of fever and was just absolutely pitiful and puny. His family felt helpless, and I was like, this is why we're doing it. This single patient is why we're doing this. So just in case you missed it, a pediatrician that in my opinion shouldn't be a doctor, and I'd question her parenting skill based on the lack of critical thinking opting instead for fear-based reactions, had one patient that was sick for nine days, fever, pitiful, 
And this is what made her decide for her son that he needed to be injected with a trial chemical. This, in my humble opinion, is child abuse. Fight me on it. And this is exactly the same manipulation technique used by the CDC, the NIH, Fraud Fauci, and President Joey himself. Remember how that chair around the dinner table was empty? Just do it for Grandma. I'm sorry, but an anecdote is not a substitution for real data. But it is a good way to keep that level of fear and panic elevated in the general population. But, lest you think it only affects children, oh no, no, no. This is a senior killer as well. In fact, as the article says, it preys on seniors. Ooh, scary. It, and you may want to sit down for this one, it leads to an estimated 159,000 hospitalizations of seniors every single year. Oh yeah, you heard me right. So this little data nugget is stated right after the child data that was termed as worldwide. Now, per the context and lack of transition, I would have to assume this is also a worldwide number, but I don't know that. So in the world, there are about 780 million seniors. If this is a global number, that means that 0.02% of seniors across the globe are hospitalized. Not dead, just hospitalized. And then they state that there are about 10,000 deaths per year in seniors, about the same as flu, which has a vaccine, <laughs> allegedly, that also doesn't work. So 10,000 deaths globally would mean that seniors have a 99.999% chance of not dying from RSV. Just for kicks, if this is only the United States they're talking about, it would be a 0.3% chance that they're hospitalized and a 99.98% chance of survival. So given any of these numbers, would you get this vax or would you vax your parents with this unproven chemical? I'd say no, personally. They then, surprisingly, go into the testing from the 1960s that ended up killing the two infants. See if you notice anything that sounds, oh, I don't know, familiar here. Quote, at first, everything looked good. The vaccine was tested in animals who tolerated it well, and then given to children who also appeared to respond well. Uh-huh. So did this sound similar to any, anyone, anything you've heard lately? Oh, but then, quote, unfortunately, that fall, when RSV season started, many of the children that were vaccinated required hospitalization and got more severe RSV disease than what would have normally occurred. The article goes on to say, quote, a study published on the trial found that 80 percent of the vaccinated children who caught RSV later required hospitalization compared with only 5 percent of the children who got a placebo. Two of the babies who had participated in the trial died. Does this sound familiar at all? I'd say look at what we're seeing with COVID, but even more, look at how this is the worst flu and RSV season year in recent memory. As I said, I'm not a doctor, but it seems strangely coincidental that we did all this vaccinating for a respiratory virus, and now we're seeing a very bad respiratory virus year. I mean, is it just me connecting these dots here? But now, now we've got it. About 10 years ago, some of the same people that developed the COVID vaxes eh, found a mechanism on how the protein docks to human cells for RSV. And now they think they can stop it. The article says, quote, the first vaccines up for FDA review will be given to adults, seniors, and pregnant women. Vaccination in pregnancy is meant to ultimately protect newborns, a group particularly vulnerable to the virus, via antibodies that cross the placenta. Um, how about no? Why does crossing the placenta have the same ominous feel as crossing the blood-brain barrier, which nothing is supposed to be able to do, uh, but the lipid nanoparticles, the LPNs of the COVID vaccine absolutely can and are doing just that. There's more in this article. You can read it if you'd like, but let me ask you, is it worth it? Do we really need to go farther? I'll say this, not every vaccine being developed or trialed are the mRNA variety. It sounds like there are some of those, some more traditional, etc. But this doesn't change my view on this. Should we actually do this? 
Do we need to be concerned with this? I'd say no. There are an infinite number of things that can make us sick or kill us in this world. That doesn't mean that we can or should try to mitigate absolutely everything. I don't know how to go about developing medicines or vaccines or genetic therapies like the COVID injection without risking the lives of humans. You probably can't. But can we not experiment on our children, our newborns, our yet-to-be-borns? But fear is the key. The more we are kept in a heightened state of fear and panic, the more parents, like this pediatrician, quote-unquote, will offer her child on the altar of the NIH to be injected with anything. This is not what Christians should do. If we, as Christians, are operating on a regular basis with fear as our main driver, we're doing it wrong. We're, in fact, sinning. Now, I've covered this before, but I'm coming back to it again. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, sound mind can also be interpreted as self-discipline or self-control, but it all means the same thing. Fear is not to dictate our lives. We're supposed to think. We have power through the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 Jesus says to the apostles and all of his children, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The word for power can mean power for performing miracles, but it's also defined as a moral power, influence, the power of the Holy Spirit with us. We have love. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. We have the power of love because Jesus loved us first. And a sound mind, self-control, Galatians 5.22-24, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Where does passion come from? Desire? Emotion. The Greek word for passion is in fact defined in one sense as emotion. We must put away our emotional passions. We must put away our emotional driven fears. And we must evaluate what we are being told, both to think and to do. When the fear starts to overwhelm, when it seems easier to just do what you're told than to have to search out answers and swim upstream, remember, Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. This psalm starts with, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Selah basically means pause and consider what was just said. We are to rely on God, rely on his strength, be still, no matter what noise is going on around us, be still. God is in control. Put away our fear our unhelpful emotions, use the power, the love, and the sound mind that God has given his children, and then, then we can make clear decisions. So, will there ever be an RSV vaccine? Maybe. Will one of these trials be the magic bullet to eliminating RSV? Maybe. Will mRNA technology always be a massive, miserable mistake? Maybe. But what we cannot do is make rash decisions based solely in fear, eliminating our omnipotent, sovereign God from the equation and from his creation. When making decisions for the body that God's given us, when making decisions for the children that God's given us, when helping others to make decisions for themselves, we must be still, put away fear, use our sound mind, know that God is in control, then use all available information, even the stuff we're told to ignore, and only then make a decision. The world is trying to use fear upon fear to keep us constantly off balance and on edge. A terrible combination when you think about it. In doing so, they can ensure we rely on them, not on God, not even on our own reason to make decisions for us. This has recently been done on a very large scale. We as Christians must never allow the world to do this to us again. Well, we've done it. We've made it to the end of our look at the Constitution. Not counting the amendments, but we don't need to talk about those. 
until a little bit later and then again next week. Welcome back to the American Genesis. This is episode 18, which is part 10 of our look at the Constitution. If you've missed any of the past segments, go dig back through the past episodes. They're in there. You'll find them. On today's episode, we're going to look at articles 5, 6, and 7, which are all pretty short and are all basically eh, more or less the rules for the Constitution. Like we've seen through the first four articles, the last few show the genius and the divine guidance of the founders once again. They knew that what they produced probably wasn't perfect. In fact, wasn't perfect by far. They knew it. They knew that times would change. They had studied the various forms of governments in the past, and they knew that the governments went corrupt and they failed. And the founders even built in some emergency safety valves in addition to the normal process of updating and bettering the Constitution. But let's go ahead and get into it, shall we? Article 5, quote, The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or, on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which, in either case, shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states, or by the conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress, provided that no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1808 shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article, and that no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. Okay, so this is a very simple rule set up to amend the Constitution. We'll hit the main part of this article in just a moment, but let's start at the end of this thing first. Now, just to refresh your and my memory, recall that this was being sent around for ratification and adoption in 1788. So the 1808 date was the 20-year window the founders set on a couple things. Article 1, Section 9, Clauses 1 and 4. Now, Clause 1 had to deal with the importation of persons into a state. Just for recollection, it reads, the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation not exceeding $10 for each person. So to break this down simply, quickly, since we've already covered it, this had to do with slavery primarily. Remember, there was no way to form or keep a United States and dismantle slavery at the same time. It just wasn't going to happen at this point in history, so they left it open for a little while, giving enough time to prepare for the end of bringing in new slaves. Moving to Clause 4, we read, No capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. Now, this had to do with taxes. If taxes were to be levied on people, it had to be done fairly. You couldn't target anyone or levy them in a progressive way like they do today. I could see this being used so as to not allow the temptation of whoever might be in leadership positions to bilk the rich before the country had a chance to settle down and just exist for a little while. With some time, hopefully much of the tumult of the last few years would settle down into some sort of normalcy. Now, back to the general amendment process. We'll talk about the amendments that have been made to the Constitution over the next couple of weeks, but realize in nearly 250 years there have only been 27 amendments to the Constitution, 10 of which were done right away, also known as the Bill of Rights. So since then, 17 amendments in almost 250 years— that should illustrate the divine guidance imparted to the founders when writing this document. This can also be attributed to the fact that it's very difficult to amend the Constitution by design. If a change is going to be made, it has to be one that a large majority of America agrees is needed. So, there are two beginning paths to amend the Constitution. The first is what we would normally think of as the typical, normal way of doing it, which is for a proposal to start in Congress. Yeah, you know you thought it. In order to proceed, both houses of Congress must pass the amendment by a two-thirds majority vote. Let me just interject here. 
our current White House Lazy Acres retirement home resident and those in his evil party want to amend the Constitution to add in homosexual marriage and baby murder. Getting anything passed through both houses at two-thirds majority is nearly impossible these days. In fact, according to the Wikipedia page, and yes, I know Wikipedia, regarding amendments, it's said that there have been nearly 12,000 proposals to amend the Constitution since 1789, and 27 amendments have made it. Only a handful of those 12,000 have ever made it out of the committee to be voted on by both chambers, and the last one actually ratified by the states was in 1992. Now, as I stated, if a proposed amendment does get to both full chambers of Congress for a vote, and at least two-thirds of both houses vote to approve the amendment, well, we're not done yet. This proposal now has to go to the states for ratification, or put simply, approval. And this is an even more difficult hill to climb. The Congress has the right to put a time limit for state ratification on the proposed amendment. If by the end of the time limit, three-fourths of the states don't ratify the proposal, the amendment dies. Again, I say I, I'm not overly concerned about gay marriage or abortion being added to the Constitution at least anytime soon. It's pretty much all partisan rhetoric to garner votes right now. Now, the other way a proposed amendment can start is the states themselves can call for it. This is called a convention of states. This is literally the safety valve I spoke of that's built into the Constitution. This has never been done before, to the best of my knowledge at least. Now, in order to do this, a very specific scope must be drawn up, and then two-thirds of the states must pass a resolution in both of the chambers of the Congress to call for this convention to happen. Once that happens, specific amendments are proposed and debated by delegates from all the states. The states vote, and those reaching the two-thirds majority threshold then go on to the process of ratification by the states, requiring three-fourths to approve. The same was, was already described. As of right now, there is an active call for a convention of states. This is not easy to get done, but the founders knew that it was a possibility that the federal government would go rogue, and they trusted the people much more than the elected officials to do the right thing. So in 2013, the call went out to enact this clause of Article 5. The current scope is to impose fiscal restraints on the federal government, limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and limit the terms of office for the officials and members of Congress. Now, per their website, some of the possible amendments could be around enforcing a balanced budget, redefining the oft-misused General Welfare Clause, redefining the oft-misused Commerce Clause, prohibiting the use of international treaties and laws as laws for the United States, limiting the use of executive orders and federal regulations, imposing term limits on Congress and the Supreme Court, capping federal taxes, as well as a few others. Sounds good, right? I mean, it does to me at least. So can this actually happen? Well, as of March of 2022, there were 19 states that had approved this call, another six that had passed it in one of the two chambers, and another 15 that were proposing it throughout 2022. That's the latest info I could find. Now, the states that have passed it already, if you're curious, are Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. Some are probably surprising that they'd vote to open up the Constitution, but I think everyone can see that the federal government has just become too powerful and too bold. They need to be brought back down to earth. My hope is that this convention can and will happen while we still have an America and a Constitution uh, to save. The genius and guidance of the founders in this one clause of this one article alone is impressive. Now, moving on, Article 6 reads, quote, all debts contracted and engagements entered into before the adoption of this Constitution shall be as valid against the United States under this Constitution as under the Confederation. 
This Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary, notwithstanding." The senators and representatives before mentioned, and the members of the several state legislatures, and all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution. But no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. All right. This is mostly speaking of the authority of the Constitution, as well as bridging the gap between the Confederated States to the United States. So debts carry over and are responsibility of the United States. All laws and treaties made after the ratification of the Constitution would be the law of the land. The judges are to be bound by the Constitution, and this is regardless of any state laws or state constitutions that may say something in contradiction to this Constitution. Unfortunately, what we see these days, more than the binding of judges to constitutional law, is the binding of judges to past precedent, which is previous rulings made by other judges. Now, in the perfect world, this wouldn't be a problem if previous judges were all ruling based solely on the Constitution. But as we know, for some time now, everything is political, and that includes judges. So judges who are supposed to be blind with regard to justice, ruling based solely on the law, are activists on both sides of the political spectrum, ruling based on beliefs, torturously twisting the law to encompass their ruling. This goes all the way to the Supreme Court, which is why there's a call from those on the left to add a large number of justices to the Supreme Court in order to get rulings swayed to their beliefs and opinions. And is exactly why I'd agree with the Convention of States that we need to at least explore in great depth putting term limits on the Supreme Court justices as well as Congress. Now, as for the oath of office, up to this point, from early in the settlement and then the colonial history of this country, there were religious tests or strict religious beliefs required to hold office in various states and locations. The founders were not setting up a theocracy, and although they took much guidance from biblical principles, specifically a good amount from Deuteronomy, they were not in favor of religious mandates. They were interested in a country where freedom reigned, even freedom of religion, to believe or not believe whatever you chose. Now, bringing this back to home, I think a lot of Christians need to keep this in mind. There were a number of high-profile pastors— and who knows how many professing Christians, that justified voting against Donald Trump or just not voting at all based on the fact that Donald Trump has not been a perfect Christian man in the past, you know, when he never claimed to be a Christian, and doesn't display the adequate type and amount of spiritual fruits today. What I try to make clear to anyone that would listen is that we're not a theocracy and we're not electing a pastor-in-chief. This is a representative constitutional republic. We're not going to have the perfect choice of candidate, so we vote for the one that best represents our Christian worldview and would be more likely to fight for our right to practice that, as well as the greatest fighter for what we hold as important, you know, such as the lives of babies, and now, these days, against the mutilation of children. We do not want to be a theocracy, being imperfect, sinful humans, we'd screw it up. Bad. And we'd do more harm than good for our witness. The only theocratic leader we should ever want won't be elected. He'll ascend from heaven and he'll be our king. So, please, if you're someone that chooses to not vote because you don't like the choice that the party that most aligns to your world and religious view has chosen, know that uh, not to vote is to vote. Stop looking for the Billy Graham of the political world. Vote for the one that most closely aligns to the beliefs you practice freely today. Moving on. Finally, Article 7. Quote, the ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient for the establishment of the Constitution between the states so ratifying the same. The word 
the being interlined between the seventh and eighth lines of the first page, the word 30 being partly written on an erasure in the 15th line of the first page, the words is tried being interlined between the 32nd and 33rd lines of the first page, and the word the being interlined between the 43rd and 44th lines of the second page, attest William Jackson, secretary. Done in convention by the unanimous consent of the states present the 17th day of September in the year of our Lord, 1787, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 12th, in witness whereof we have hereunto subscribed our names. And I won't read the signatories. You can look those up if you'd like. So they set the standard of a two-thirds majority of states ratifying the Constitution to make it the law. However, as we know, it was approved and ratified by all. And I find it funny that they listed out the errors in the writing of the document. I guess I've just always kind of been amazed at the perfection of the calligraphy of the original document. I mean, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I didn't even know that there were little mistakes or little corrections in there. But to be honest, it really kind of brings out the humanity of the founders, doesn't it? Uh, you're missing a the right there. Oh, come on. Fine, let's just wedge it in there. I ain't rewriting this whole thing. And with that. We've reached the end of our look at the body of the Constitution. Now, hopefully you found this interesting, enlightening, at least a bit entertaining, and most importantly, educational. Now, assuming you've been following along for the entire series, if you're ever asked if you've read the Constitution, you can now honestly say that you have. You know, rather than that awkward, well, I've read part of it, I'm not sure I've ever read the entire thing, knowing full well that you're very sure that you've never read the entire thing. Now, hopefully you've been able to see, as I've said multiple times, both the genius and the divine guidance found in this document. But our journey through the American Genesis isn't over yet. We've got some ground to cover still. So join me next time as we start our look at the amendments to this Constitution, beginning at, at number one. I mean, where else would we start? Yeah, and, that, and that's also the start of what we now know today as the Bill of Rights. So until next time. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. God bless.